Good morning, everyone. It's been an interesting week uh, for me. I was given uh, a sermon topic, and it just simply said, God uses nobodies, dash Phil Oster. So uh, it, was, it was a very humbling start, um, but truly, truly humbling and liberating when um, you recall that we are all nobodies. We are absolutely nobody saved by the most significant somebody in the universe so that we are united with him and we too become a somebody in Christ. So uh, it's, a good, it's a good topic, good thing for us to remember and it's certainly something that Peter uh, has come to know. We're uh, working through a series in our church on uh, seeing Christ through and in the life and events of the Apostle Peter. And he came from uh, a very humble past and he certainly knew he was a nobody, but he became a somebody in Christ. Let's um, pray together and ask God to breathe upon his word today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. As Venice uh, mentioned, it's our, our, our authority and uh, we have absolute confidence that it is your word of truth to us for life and for hope in Christ so, Father, would you come by your power today, open our eyes, open our hearts, unstop our ears so we can see and receive everything you want to deposit into our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. So our passage for today, as you've probably worked out from the scripture reading today, is found in Acts chapter 9 and from verse 31. So um, feel free to turn uh, in your Bibles if you have one of those real Bible things or perhaps on your phone or otherwise the key scriptures will be on the screen behind me. Now what I first noticed when um, I, I got to the start of this passage is that it begins with the word so. Now immediately my mind goes back to primary school years and I clearly remember my English teacher telling me that I should never begin an English sentence with the words so and because or but. Never. And um, clearly the translators of the uh, English living, uh, English ESV, English Standard Version, didn't go to my primary school because they did begin with the word so. And as I look through my message uh, later on, I have got so many sentences begin with so and but or because. So I'm not sure what's going on there. But clearly... <laughs> anyway, now, the word so is a bridging term. And it relates what's gone before it to what's going to come after it. And so it's important that we get a grasp of a bit of what was going on before so we can make sense of verse 31. So Acts chapter 9 kicks off with this guy called Saul. He's an arch enemy of the church. He's hell-bent on destroying this fledgling Christian movement. And he's out to persecute Christians, throw them in jail, kill them. Uh, that's where he's at. That's what's in his heart. That's his goal. That's his lifelong goal. Uh, he's breathing threats and murder against the people of God. But then God's sovereign grace breaks in and changes history dramatically by converting Saul on the road to Damascus, both stunning and radical. In an instant, Saul is raised from death to life and suddenly he sees. He wasn't seeking after God. God intervened, stopped him in his tracks, changed him in an instant. Sometime later, Saul, now known as Paul, begins preaching Jesus as the true Christ. 
He's increasing in strength and influence and confounding the Jews. And so it's hardly surprising then that we read of a plot by the Jews in Damascus to kill him. Paul narrowly escapes and heads down to Jerusalem to meet with some of the apostles and after some further preaching in Jerusalem, uh, which leads to more death threats, uh, there's another thrilling escape. So that's the environment in which we reach verse 31 of Acts chapter 9. The world is quite hostile to the church to the point of violence. Christians are being persecuted and arrested, thrown into prison, put to death for the sake of the gospel. And if you're anything like me, you're incredibly thankful for the times in which we live, that we can be pretty certain that we are not going to be invaded by a group of armed soldiers who are wanting to throw us in prison and threaten violence to us. Um, We like the freedoms, the liberties and the comforts of the Christian life here in Australia. And part of me thinks that that provides the best opportunity and environment for me to grow as a Christian. Maybe. Maybe not. Contrastingly, we'd expect a persecuted church like that described in Acts 9 to be a suffering church, struggling to stay alive, paralyzed by fear, and devoid of hope which is why verse 31 is so stunning. So, with the backdrop of all this suffering and persecution, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. It multiplied. I mean, I did not expect that. Well, I'd read it before, but you don't expect that coming out of this situation of turmoil and adversity to see multiplication. Right there amid the storm which the enemy meant for evil, God was up to something really, really good. In the depths of adversity, God produced prosperity. In the pit of despairing gloom, God brought unprecedented fruit. It's like the church found itself right in the heart of the hurricane, in the eye of the storm. And though there was chaos on the outside, on the inside, there was joy and hope. Right there in that climate, the church had peace and was being built up. We often fear hardship. We fear persecution. We fear illness, we fear adversity, we fear trouble, we fear death. But they're often the times in which we're drawn most closely to God. Times in which we hear his voice most vividly, when the scriptures seem most precious to us. Times in which we experience growth that we otherwise wouldn't see. So we shouldn't fear those things but instead look to God with expectant hope. Now there's a different kind of fear that Luke writes about here, which seems to make all the difference in the world to the church. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So just what is walking in the fear of the Lord? 
I found this quote by John Piper. He writes this. He says, The fear of the Lord is that sense of awe that the Lord God is infinitely holy and infinitely powerful and may not be trifled with. He is free to break in with indescribable, heart-stopping suddenness and power whenever and wherever he pleases. I've got no doubt that I, I lack in terms of the fear of the Lord. I treat God too trivially. I'm all too little impressed by his greatness and glory. I undervalue him. I forget that he is infinitely holy and I underestimate the appalling offense of my daily sins. I minimize what he saved me from and the lengths he went to to achieve my salvation. The God in my mind is usually way too tame and inert and inactive. Do we sometimes imagine that God really is that great watchmaker in the sky who wound up the clock of the universe and then sat back in the distance to watch it all unfold? He's abstract, distant, uninvolved. Well, opposing that, we need to embrace the fear of the Lord as that sense of awe that the Lord God is infinitely holy and infinitely powerful and may not be trifled with. He is free to break in with indescribable, heart-stopping suddenness and power whenever and wherever he pleases. One of the reasons the book of Acts exists is to show us by means of a series of dramatic adventures and encounters that, yes, Jesus has returned to the right hand of God the Father. But God is seriously alive and well and sovereignly active in the life and times of the church through the power of his word and the presence of his Holy Spirit. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So this phrase, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, when we think of comfort, we tend to think of great, big, fluffy, cuddly pillows to just fall into. Or that, that comfortable armchair with the footrest. You can just sit down and just be at peace with the world. Or maybe a warm, cosy bed after a, a hard day. But that definition of comfort as something that produces physical ease only arose in the mid-1600s. A more biblical definition describes comfort as strengthening and expressing intensive force, encouragement. And anyone who's uh, been involved in music in their career um, knows that forte is the Latin word for strength. You play with strength. So comfort talks about strength. So the Holy Spirit as comforter isn't one who just mops our brow and wipes our tears and hands us a drink and makes us feel comfortable. He is the third person of the Trinitarian God who comes to us in sovereign power to strengthen and encourage us to lift our eyes to the majesty of the triumphant King of Kings. He builds our faith and gives us a hope that will not disappoint. 
He gives us the ability to cling to God in the most difficult of times. He sustains us and promises to lead us all the way home. This is the God we belong to. So as we see God move in the book of Acts, it should increase our sense of the awe and wonder of God. It should encourage us that this same God who moved so profoundly in those early days of the church is very capable, very capable of doing the same at any moment of history that he so chooses. He doesn't reside in the far-off reaches of the universe. This same God who is transcendent over and above all things is also imminent, breathtakingly close and constantly with us, even to the end of the age. Those two truths we need to hold together in the Christian walk. God is transcendent. He is not to be trifled with, not to be messed with. He is awesome and all-powerful and sovereign. But he is also imminent, closer than the air we breathe and promises to be with us always. Well, Luke now turns to Peter's next adventure, verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So Jesus had told the apostles to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so Peter was on the move. He went to Lydda, which is a town about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and it's kind of on the way to Joppa, which is a port on the Mediterranean, where Peter's going to end up at the end of this chapter. And he found a group of Christian believers, and Peter was confronted with a paralytic. It's not the first time Peter has been confronted with a very disabled person. As we saw back in Acts 3, Peter was used by God to heal a man lame from birth. Filled with faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter simply proclaimed, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he did. This time, Peter calls to Aeneas and commands, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. I love the fact that Peter told him to make his bed. So sure was Peter that God would come through in this miracle and that this man, bedridden for eight years, would never need that bed again. I was... Um, racing around this morning trying to get ready and I was just about ready to run out the door and I looked around in the bedroom and I saw the bed hadn't been made. And I'm reminded of Peter's words and as we'll see in a sec, Jesus' words, to make your bed. And it's like, I've got to make my bed. I've got to make my bed. So I ran back in and I made my bed and as I did so, I strained my back. It's like, the irony, the irony of that. So I've got a sore back this morning. <laughs> getting old there's similarities um, to an, an encounter that Jesus had in Mark chapter 2 in which the friends of a paralytic lowered this man down through the roof 
You remember this story probably from Sunday school. And uh, it was an occasion Jesus used to show his divinity, his ability to forgive sins as well as to bring life and wholeness and restoration. Jesus said to the man, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he did. And Mark records that the people were amazed and glorified God. And that's exactly the right response. Jesus performed a sign to reveal himself as the divine son of God. And the people responded by giving praise and glory to God. Don't forget to look past the sign. The sign is the miracle. But don't get lost in the wonder and awe and delight of the miracle. Look past the miracle to where the miracle is pointing. The miracle points to Jesus, the sovereign king of the universe, our Lord of glory. I was sharing with our home group the other night about a sunset and how often we're, we're captivated by the sunset. You'll see posts on Facebook, God, oh, did anyone see the sunset tonight? See the colours, it was just awesome, it was amazing, I was so excited. But don't stop there. Look to where it's pointing. It's pointing to the God of the universe who created it, who gifted it to us, that we might find delight, not just in the sun, but to see the sun as a sign pointing to him and find ultimate delight in him as our God and as our saviour. So look beyond the sign, look to where the sign's pointing. Don't just settle for the sign. In Acts 9, Peter steps in as Christ's ambassador, as Christ's representative, and upon witnessing the miracle, the people who witnessed it also turned to the Lord. Peter knew that he didn't have the ability to bring wholeness to the man, but he knew that Jesus did. Jesus is the only healer, the only one who can make us whole. The miraculous healing was a sign and the people watching looked to where the sign was pointing and they saw Jesus for who he really is. And they found life and salvation in him as their saviour from sin and death. How much does that resonate with the testimonies we heard this morning from these young people? They once were lost but now are found. They were blind but now they see. This Jesus that once was irrelevant to them is now everything to them. We may not be physically paralysed, but every one of us experiences some form of spiritual paralysis. We may be able to walk without help. We might even be able to make our own beds, though I'm sure there are some mothers of teenage kids who, who wonder if that's true of their teenagers at times. But there are still things which grip us with fear and paralyze us from being all that God created us to be. There are still habits of sin which so easily entangle us. The Puritans used to call them besetting sins. Sins that you just can't seem to shake, that you seem to wrestle with constantly. Your besetting sins are different from another person's besetting sins, but there's some stuff that's so difficult to shake And things like that, things like sins, things like lack of confidence in God, all sorts of things can hamstring us and, and prevent us from achieving what God's created us to be and, and haunt our ability to run the race and press on 
toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In our salvation, we're saved in an instant. But the Christian walk, our sanctification, involves a lifetime of looking to Jesus for wholeness, for transformation, for character conformity to the image of Christ. Eight years of paralysis is a long time, but let this story encourage you to not give up in areas of your life which seem impossible to overcome. Keep looking to Jesus. He's still in the business of changing lives, and you can be certain that in the waiting, as you keep your eyes on him, he's up to something really good because he's the author but he's also the perfecter of your faith. He's absolutely committed to completing the work that he begun in you. And he says it is a good work that he's doing. And he's committed to bringing you all the way home so you can trust him in every step. Well, a healing from paralysis is one thing, but how's Peter's faith going to respond when confronted with a dead person? I mean, that is, that is seriously next level. So let's take a look what happens as Paul, sorry, Peter moves further west to the town of Joppa on the Mediterranean coast. Verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated into Greek means Dorcas and translated into English means gazelle. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they'd washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please, come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. My wife would have loved being there. She's into crocheting and knitting and you know, making little booties and jumpers and little doilies and things like that. She would have absolutely loved it. Peter, I don't know how... He would have humoured them, I'm sure. But uh, so that was the the situation. But it's interesting that Luke makes a point of Tabitha's good works and acts of charity. The New Living Translation says she was always doing kind things for others and helping the poor. Presumably, at least part of her ministry was caring for widows because when Peter arrives, all the weeping widows um, are showing Peter examples of her charity. Charity and good works were what she was known for. And that raises the question, what are you known for? And what am I known for? What are we known for? What would Luke write about us if he described our life? What, What are we known for? Is the life of Christ inside me merely an intellectual belief system? Or does it break out and overflow into good works that people can see? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And in Ephesians 2.10, Paul encourages us by writing that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Tabitha heeded 
these exhortations. She cooperated with the life of Christ inside her by the power of the Holy Spirit to let her love for Jesus overflow into good works that could be seen and experienced by others that they might be blessed and marvel and give glory to God. James, um, who writes in one of the later epistles in the Bible, uh, tells us that faith without works is dead. Now he means that a true and living faith inevitably shows the evidence of its genuineness with authenticating fruit and good works. If there are no works, there's simply no evidence that the faith is real. So the works, the good works, are not the foundation of our salvation, but they are the fruit of our salvation. They show that our salvation is real because there's been significant change and we're now filled with the life of God which can't help but overflow into good works. Our church's motto, glory to God and joy to the city, comes about when we live out our faith in sacrificial ways in public view. Sacrificial ways and public view. The life of Christ inside us needs to overflow into good works. That's what Tabitha did, and now she's queuing up for a resurrection. Verse 40. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Now we shouldn't read that and not be stunned. This is a resurrection. This person was dead. And by the power of Jesus, she was made alive again. I don't know about you, but in my world, resurrections are pretty rare. Even in the Bible, we only have a record of around a dozen or so. There were three in the Old Testament in the era of Elijah and Elisha. There were another three under the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels. Most notably, of course, was the resurrection of Jesus himself. And then there are a couple recorded for us in the book of Acts. So they're rare, but they're real. Most vitally, the resurrection of Jesus makes all the difference in the world for us, both for our living in the present and for our future hope. The Bible tells us that because Jesus conquered death, if we're joined to him by faith, we too will be raised to life. It's not some pie-in-the-sky fairy story. It's our certain hope. And the Christian hope is absolutely guaranteed. It's not the kind of hope that you might have that this afternoon the red legs or the cock-a-doodle-doodlers will win the premiership. That's a, an uncertain hope. You can't control that. Who knows how it's going to go. The Christian hope is an absolutely certain hope. There is absolutely no doubt because the sovereign king of the universe holds you in the palm of his hand and he's promised to carry you all the way home. So what are we to take away from these healings and resurrections? Can we expect them today? 
Well, I reckon there are a few truths we can certainly draw out from the scriptures. Firstly, Jesus has declared himself to be the resurrection and the life. By the power of his word, by divine command, he displayed a reversal of the curse of sin by raising people to life. Yes, they would die again in this life. But Jesus was revealing that his kingdom is breaking through into our world as a glorious foretaste of eternity where the faith will become sight and every tear will be wiped away. Every sickness, every deformity, everything that holds us back will be eliminated and death will be no more. Jesus has given us a certain hope. Just as he was raised from the dead, so too will our mortal bodies be raised to new life in a perfected state for all of eternity. Secondly, don't underestimate the even greater resurrection that has taken place in the spiritual existence of every believer. Every single child of God has truly been raised from the dead and called to life just as spectacularly as Lazarus and just as dramatically as Saul. If you're a Christian, you have heard the voice of Jesus and you've come running out of the grave rejoicing in your saviour. Thirdly, Peter may have performed miraculous works, but he knew they weren't his works. They were God's works. The power was in Jesus' name. Fourthly, God was certainly doing some spectacular works during the formation years of the early church. He was authenticating and confirming the ministry and the teaching of the apostles with signs and wonders, which was vital for securing the canon of scriptures, the Bible we have today. Throughout biblical history, God has worked more spectacularly in key seasons to draw attention to something significant that he was doing at the time. We shouldn't necessarily expect that right now is one of those seasons. Nevertheless, God is sovereign and is fully able to break into our circumstances with miraculous power whenever he so chooses. Fifthly, we learn from Peter that we need to be obedient to God's call upon our lives in both the big things and the small. We need to trust God that he is still in the business of being absolutely sovereign and of displaying his glory and doing amazing things. We need to remember that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And we need to know this for ourselves as ministers so we've got the confidence and the boldness to minister and pray for others that God is able and God is good. And we need to know this for ourselves as God's precious children. We need the encouragement. We need to remember that in our weakness, God's strength is made perfect. Well, will God heal you? Will he change your circumstances? Will he remove the thorn from your flesh? Will he grant you a miracle? 
Will he allow you to overcome a particular sin once and for all? Will he take away the thing in your life that threatens to overwhelm you? Will he spare you from death? I don't know. If Pastor Graham was here, maybe he could tell us. But I don't know. I don't know what God will do. But two things I do know. God is able. And God is good. Therefore, he can be trusted. God is absolutely sovereign, all-powerful and in complete control. And he loves you with a love that will not let you go. And so you can plead your cause to him. You can cry out for his intervening miraculous grace. You can be certain that he knows your pain and your frustration and your struggle. You can be confident that he hears your cry. And you can be certain that he cares for you. And you can know for sure that he's right there with you doing whatever is necessary for you to know Jesus as your all-satisfying treasure because in the end, that's what life is all about and that's what eternity is all about. Knowing and loving and delighting in the awesome God who made you and saved you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which just contains so much truth that breathes life into us. Father, thank you that it's your words lodging in our hearts. And Father, I pray we'll take something away today that your Holy Spirit invests in us. Lord, we all need to hear your word today because we've all got stuff in our life that holds us back and overwhelms us. Lord, some of us need to see Christ for the first time as saviour from our sin and the consequences of it, death and eternal damnation. Father, we need to see Christ as our greatest treasure, the one to give us life and life abundantly and life eternal. Lord, would you come to us by your Holy Spirit today? Would you come in your power and your majesty? come in your beauty and your quietness and speak savingly to our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.